Please stand for the reading of the word. Today's reading passage comes from Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, for whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it, read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Floyd. Good morning. It is great to be with you and to worship with you. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Zach Stanton, and I'm the worship director here at Grace. Uh, This is not the part of the service that you normally see me. Um, uh, Normally, I'm I'm behind uh, a a microphone, a guitar, or a piano, and uh, I'm leading uh, the singing part of our service. Um, But this morning, I have the privilege of opening the word with you, and I'm really excited about that. Uh, The plan originally was for... Uh, Brooks and I just to trade places, and he was going to lead the singing, and I was going to preach for him, but he backed out at the last minute. Um, that's okay. Maybe another time. Uh, so I wanted to ask, how many of you know who these fine gentlemen are on the screen? Anybody recognize these guys? Okay, a few hands. All right, for those of you who don't know, how many of you have heard of Doc Holliday, Wyatt Earp, and the gunfight at the OK Corral? Okay, right? So a few of you have. If you don't, Google it. It's kind of a, you know, well-known story. Uh, but uh, so because I'm a card-carrying nerd, last year I read a book on the history of the Tombstone event, and I've got to tell you, the movies do not do this story justice. It is crazy. And one of the things I learned as I was reading this book is that the movies that you've seen or the television shows that depict the anarchy and the chaos of the Wild West, the shoot 'em up stuff, that's how it actually was. That's real. It was, it was crazy in the wild. That's why they called it the Wild West. So, um, you know, the cowboys were generally the bad guys. Oftentimes, the local sheriff is working in cahoots with these cowboys and benefiting from what they're doing, so he's protecting them. And if, if uh, somebody committed a crime against you and you wanted justice done for that, and the sheriff isn't doing anything about it, as in the tombstone story, then a lot of times people would just take matters into their own hands. They become their own law. 
And if you were one of the bad guys, then there's a good chance you would do things illegal because you know you're going to get away with it. So I, I bring this up this morning because this paints a pretty good picture of what things were like in the days of the judges. There was no formalized leadership structure in Israel. Uh, the, 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 uh, um, the further that the, they got away from the days of Moses and Joshua, the worse things got. Um, we see that God has raised up judges at times to save the people when they call out to him. But even those judges, like the sheriffs of the Wild West or, or even Wyatt Earp, they weren't exactly good guys. The refrain this summer has been, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the last verse of the book of Judges, and it's a fitting summary for everything that we've seen over the last couple of months. We've seen some really disturbing things as a result of the fact that the people have no leadership, and they're doing whatever is right in their own eyes. But my heart has gone out to Israel as we've studied this. The fact that they lacked leadership is, is why they wandered into all the problems of their spiritual and moral syncretism, where they're just adopting the practices of the nations that are around them. And we've also talked about the parallels to our own time. Because right, we, we don't know anything about just adopting the culture around us or, or just doing what other people do because it seems normal or doing what's right in our own eyes, right? Except that we do. We do know about those things. And we experience those things even in the church. So as we wrap up this morning, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the need for a king that the book of Judges clearly paints for us. We're going to look at the desire for a king that the people had. And then we're going to look at the provision of a king. Would you pray with me and please pray for me as we begin? Father, we are thankful to be your people. We're thankful to be gathered here this morning and for the opportunity to be reminded of truth, to sing truth about your kingdom, Jesus, to sing of your kingship. And Jesus, we thank you that you are our king and we want to submit to you this morning as your people. And Lord, I pray that you would give me your words this morning and by your spirit, that you would work in our hearts to encourage us, to teach us, to exhort us, to challenge us, to grow us. And we pray that all of this would bring glory, Jesus, to your name. Amen. So the need for a king. So we, we see in the book of Judges, we've seen the consequence of no king, right? That's been the, the, the writer of the Judges has really tried to hammer that point home. And we could pick just about any chapter that we've gone through and, and point to it and, and find the consequences of no king. The last five chapters in particular were a really vivid picture of this. Chapter 17 and 18, we see religious deterioration as they start just doing whatever they, they want. They're mixing their worship of Yahweh with kind of the practices, the worship practices of the people. Uh, we see in chapters 19 through 21 the result of that. We see the moral deterioration. And those last three chapters were just horrifying, right? They were, they were really gross things that came out of their, their walking away from true worship of God. And we learn from the passage that Floyd just read for us in Deuteronomy 17, the role of the king. 
What, if, there, if there is going to be a king, what is that king for? Why would there be a king? Well, in Deuteronomy 17, God actually laid out for the people what a king should do and look like. And if we wanted to summarize it, we could say it kind of like this. The king's role is to protect the worship of Yahweh and to lead the people in obeying his law. That's, that's the most important job that the king had. Let's take a look at just a couple of these verses again and, and kind of unpack them. Let me read just a, a verses 18 and 19. And when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. So there's some interesting things in here. First of all, let's talk about the fact that the king is supposed to take God's law, the book of the law, and write it out word for word by hand. That's going to take a long time. And this is not just... Uh, like a, a handwriting exercise. What's the point of this exercise? The reason the king has to do this is because he has to take note of every detail of God's law. Every jot has to be correct. The Levitical priests have to look over his shoulder. Okay, yeah, you got it right. That's correct. We can't get anything wrong. And the reason he has to write it out is so that he can see all those things that you might miss if you're just reading or hearing somebody else read it to you. If you're writing it out by hand, you're going to notice things that you may have never noticed before. There's a parallel in the music world. You, I have to do a music example, right? That's, that's, that's what I do. Um, there's a parallel in, in genres of music where the performers are, are primarily improvising. The way that performers learn to do this is through a process called transcription. And what the musician does is they will listen to a solo or a performance of a great musician from the past, and they'll listen over and over and over again until they know every single nuance of that particular song, that performance. They can play every note and every rhythm. They notice every shade of dynamic change, loud and soft, the phrasing, slowing down, speeding up. And not only can they replicate it by playing it themselves, they take it to the next step and they have to write it down. And when they write it down, that's really showing that they've noticed every detail in this. And that's exactly what's going on with the king here. The king has to pay attention to every detail of God's law. The king also has to read in the law daily. He has to be in this word. He can't just write it and check that box and be done with it. He has to stay in the word. And then he has to do it. He has to do this word and obey the instructions that God has given him. Another thing that we see in this passage that's kind of implied is there is a, a, a bit of a, a separation of powers that's going on. In the United States government, we have the separation of powers where we have the executive branch and the judicial branch and the legislative branch. And the idea is that you have these different groups that have uh, different responsibilities, different power. Therefore, it's not just one person or one group that wields all the power. In ancient Israel, the king didn't have all the power. Well, we know, first of all, as we just said, that he's under God's law. And he couldn't just make laws according to his own preferences or change laws on a whim. He had to obey God's law. He was underneath that law. He was also 
subject to the authorities of the, the priesthood. Right, the tribe of Levi, the, the household of Aaron, they're the ones who are in charge of the worship of Yahweh. They're the mediators between God and the people. They're the ones who lead them in worship, offering sacrifices, making atonement. They're the ones who are responsible for teaching the law to the people. The king couldn't do all of those things. He can't go make sacrifices. That's not his job. So he also has to, uh, he, he has to recognize that there's authority that the priests have that he doesn't have. There's also the prophets who receive a word from the Lord, and when they came to the king and gave that word to the king, he can't just dismiss it. He needs to submit himself to it, whether or not he likes what the prophet says. So there is a, there is a, uh, um, a sense of the king's power being kept in check here. And this is very important, uh, that the king have this understanding that it's not all about him, and he has to be humble. We saw in Judges, we've seen that the people did what was right in their own eyes, but what they needed was a king who would lead them to do what is right in God's eyes. History shows us, and even just looking around the world today, shows us that people need leadership. We have this intuitive sense that we can't all just do our own thing. We have leadership structures of all kinds whether at the local level or even at the the national and international level, we need leadership. People want leadership. They want good leadership. You and I want good leadership. And Israel certainly wanted good leadership. And so we see their desire for a king in a few places. Remember when we looked at Gideon a few weeks ago in chapter 8 of Judges? Uh, Gideon is probably one of the most well-known judges. We know how he brought about victory for the people. Uh, it says that they, they had a time of peace. And the people are enjoying this peace that they're having under Gideon. And they're like, you know, we, we want to make this a thing so that we can be assured of peace going forward. So they come to Gideon. They say, Gideon, we want to make you our king. We want your sons and your grandsons to rule over us. Let's make this official. And Gideon, to his credit, says, no, actually, Yahweh shall rule over you. It was the right thing for Gideon to say at the time. But unfortunately, Gideon's actions don't really mesh with what he said. Because we also see at the end of Judges chapter 8 that he goes and he makes an ephod. This is a priestly garment. You remember this where he, he sets up this ephod and it says that it was a snare to the people. So Gideon is taking on a role that he shouldn't have. He should not be trying to take on a priestly role and be a mediator for the people. This is the priest's role. And the surrounding nations, their kings often were seen as mediators between God and man, or as a god themselves. The other thing that Gideon does, which is kind of obvious, but he names his son Abimelech, which means my father is king. Like, wait a second, Gideon, you just said, no, I'm not going to be the king. And then you name your son, my father is king. What, what are you saying about how you see yourself? Well, then we get to, to the next chapter, Judges 9, and this is the story of Abimelech. So this son of Gideon, uh, he, he, after Gideon dies, he goes to his mother's family. One of, this was Gideon's concubine. And he goes to his mother's family and says, hey, you guys want a leader, right? 
You don't want Gideon's other sons to rule over you. You want me because I'm one of your own people. I'm flesh and blood. And they're like, yeah, we want you to rule over us. We don't want those other guys. So Abimelech goes and kills all but one of Gideon's other sons. And that gives us a taste of what Abimelech was like as a guy. Not a good guy. And the rest of Judges 9 just kind of lays out all of the violence that he was guilty of. And God quickly brought Abimelech to doom because God was not pleased with him. So now we need to fast forward just a little bit to the last days of the judges. And and we haven't got to this because we've stayed in the book of Judges, but we actually have a little more history of the judges into Samuel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see that the prophet Samuel had set up two of his own sons as judges in Israel. And we find out that they weren't good either. They, it says, would take bribes. So if your price was right, you could get things to work out the way you wanted it to. And so the people are understandably frustrated by this. And they come to Samuel and say, look, Samuel, your your sons are not like you. This is not working out. We demand of you that you actually give us a king. We want a king like the nations around us. The problem was that the people's priority in a king was not the right priority. They said they wanted a king like the nations around them who could lead them into battle, who could actually be a judge for them. And they were not concerned, it says, with the worship of God. And I would encourage you to read that chapter just so you can see that full context. But they're not interested in in a, a king who's going to lead them in God's word and show them what it looks like to obey him and make sure that the people are following God's law. They want a warlord. That's what the nations around them had. And there's an irony here also because the nations surrounding them that they wanted to emulate saw their king as a god as I mentioned just a second ago. They often saw their king as a god, and yet Israel does not see their god as a king. They didn't want Yahweh to be their king, so they reject him. And so we should just pause for a second and think about us for a little bit. What is our priority in leadership? What do we value in leaders? Leaders of any type, whether this is political or church leaders or civic leaders or whatever it may be, what do you look for or want or desire in a leader? Now, I don't want to oversimplify this because the the main application this morning isn't, all right, how Israel needed a good leader, we need good leaders, how do we pick good leaders? It's much bigger than that, but I think it's, it's an application that's worth thinking about because there's, there's so many implications for our lives. We're going we're gonna to continue with this thought as we keep going this morning, but I just wanted to, to plant that seed for now. So we've seen that Israel has this desire for a king, and the desire is fine. Deuteronomy 17, has, God has given a provision for a king, so we know that that's okay. The problem is that their motive is wrong, And because they have rejected God as their king, God says to Samuel, he says, you can set up a king for them, but you need to warn them what this king is going to be like. Let them know that this king is going to, he's going to expect the best for himself. This is the nature of monarchy, right? 
monarchs are not going to settle for second best. You have to give the best. They're going to be wealthy. They're going to enjoy the good life. And that's what happened with Israel's kings. So God provides a king for them. And what we find very quickly is that it did not pan out the way that the people had hoped. He did not end up being a great leader. And now, we're not going to go through all of the kings. Uh, the, the overall trajectory is not good, right? It, it just it goes downhill pretty quickly. Saul, the first king, was not a good king. Take a look at 1 Samuel 13 and 15. This is toward the beginning of Saul's reign. And very quickly, he disobeys God blatantly. And in both of these chapters, I think it's interesting that his disobedience is directly related to how he worships God. And that demonstrates the kind of heart that he had. And so after this disobedience and Saul even just making excuses for his disobedience, God says, this is not the guy. His family is not going to sit on the throne. So then David is anointed king. And, uh, you know, David actually was a good king. It says that he had a heart after God's own heart. We know that he prioritized the worship of God because he wanted to build a temple for God. He made provision for that temple to be built, the central place of worship. David wrote some of the most beautiful worship songs ever written in the Psalms. So he did have a heart for worship, and he did want to lead the people in that. But at the same time, as Brooks mentioned last week, he also committed adultery with one of his general's wives and then murder of the general to cover up that adultery. And this is the best leader Israel ever had. I don't think we would want to say that of the best leader we've ever had, that he was an adulterer who then murdered somebody to cover that up. So that's, that's not great even with a good leader. And unfortunately, this is the high point of the monarchy in Israel, and everything just gets worse from there. Then we have Solomon, David's son. He starts out as a pretty good leader, uh, but very quickly disobeys. And uh, we see that he starts doing the things, the exact things that God said not to do in Deuteronomy 17. In um, 1 Kings 10, we see that he accumulates horses for himself. God didn't want the king to get horses because God wanted the people to trust in him to win their battles, just like he always had. And he wanted them to know, things are not different now that you have a king. It's not that the king has to be the one who wins your battles. I'm still winning the battles for you. But Solomon gets a bunch of horses. Then uh, it says in 1 Kings 10 that he accumulated excessive wealth, gold and silver, which Deuteronomy 17 says, don't get excessive gold and silver. But he had so much silver, it says in 1 Kings, that silver was of no value in Israel, that it was as common as a stone. It would be like if our gravel lot back here, you go out there and it's not gravel, it's just silver. That's, that's what it was like. So he has way too much. He doesn't need all this wealth. He needs to rely on God and not on the wealth that he's accumulated. And then finally, uh, Deuteronomy 17 says, don't accumulate a bunch of wives. Don't acquire a lot of wives. Well, so... Solomon had 700 wives and then 300 concubines. This is probably a record. And the worst part about this is God said, the reason you shouldn't do this is because they will turn your heart away. And that's exactly what 1 Kings 11 says happened because he married into the surrounding nations. It says he married Pharaoh's daughter. He's making allegiances with these nations. 
And they led him astray. It says that he started worshiping their gods. He started sacrificing to Ashtaroth. He started sacrificing to Molech. He started sacrificing to all these other gods. So Solomon doesn't pan out. The rest of them are no better. There's a few bright spots, but overall, it just goes downhill. And as a result of all of this disobedience, the people end up in exile, and things are bleak for them. They spend hundreds of years under the thumb of foreign powers. But God had made a promise to them. God had made a promise of a king who would sit on the throne of David forever. So I want to read just a couple of passages. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through the first part of verse 14. This is when God is making his covenant with David. And he comes to David and he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come up from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. In the immediate context, this is talking about Solomon. And we know that for sure because it goes on to talk about when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him as a father. But we also know that this passage is referencing a king in the future. And we know that because of some verses in the New Testament. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. Hebrews 1 is a chapter where the the author to the Hebrews is saying, Jesus is the final and perfect word from God. And listen, listen to verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, and here's the quote from Second Samuel, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So God is promising that he is sending his own son to sit on the throne of David and that that throne will be established forever. Listen also to Luke chapter 1. This is where Gabriel comes to Mary and is announcing to her that she will bear the Messiah. And and listen to the echoes of 2 Samuel 7 here in verses 32 and 33. Gabriel says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So there is a coming king. And this is a promise that the people of Israel had been hanging on to. They knew 2 Samuel 7. They knew other prophecies. And they're looking for this Messiah to come. Now, we know that that Messiah is Jesus. Jesus is the king who was coming. We need to look at a couple of characteristics of this king. Some of them, the people were not surprised by. They were amazed by but that's what they expected. Some of these characteristics, absolutely not. So what was this king like? First of all, Jesus was known for how he taught the word. Jesus, uh, when he taught, people were amazed. And in Mark chapter one, when he comes, he's in Capernaum, Jesus comes into the synagogue and starts teaching. This is verses 20 and 21. The people are like, who is this guy? We've never heard anybody that can teach like this. This guy teaches with authority, not like our scribes and teachers of the law. Those guys are doing the best they can, but clearly they don't know what this guy knows. 
And they, they couldn't believe that somebody with no training formally could teach the way that he taught. This is checking one of the boxes of the king, right, from chapter 17 of Deuteronomy. I don't know if Jesus actually wrote down by hand the entirety of God's law. It wouldn't surprise me if he did. But what we do know in John chapter 1, John says that the word became flesh. That Jesus embodied God's word. Jesus said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So Jesus is a king who is a king of the word. Another characteristic that he was known for is that he was a humble and gentle shepherd. Jesus would associate with the lowest members of society. He was hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is, is uh, providing for people. He, he's giving bread and fish to people that are hungry. And Jesus, one of the things he's primarily known for was that he healed people. And when he would show up in a town, people would come uh, in droves with sick people because they know They've heard what Jesus has done to people that are sick. They want to be healed. They want their loved ones to be healed. So they're, they're coming in droves to see Jesus heal people because that's what Jesus spent his time doing. He was a shepherd that didn't exalt himself over the people, but he humbled himself. And listen, I want to read a couple verses from, from Mark chapter 1. Listen to verses 40 through 42. It says, And a leper came to Jesus, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And it says immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And this is astonishing, not just because Jesus can heal the leper, but leprosy was this disease that at the time was, was basically a slow death sentence. It's not a big deal today. Get the right antibiotics and you'll be, you'll be fine in a month or two. But back then, if you had leprosy, you had to be outside the city gates. You can't come in the city and, and buy your food. You're relying on the, the good graces of other people to care for you. And so Jesus happens to be outside the city gate going somewhere. This leper sees him, knows who he is, asks him if he'd heal him. And I don't think the leper expected what was going to happen because you don't touch lepers. But that's exactly what Jesus did. And this is a guy, we don't know the last time he got a a hug from a family member. You know the power of human touch, of being embraced by somebody you love? For Jesus to come up and touch him and heal him is a demonstration of Jesus' care for the people that needed him the most. So this is the kind of king that he is. He was a teacher of the word, and he was a humble and gentle and loving shepherd. The third characteristic that I want to talk about, there's many more obviously, but the third one that I want to mention, the first two made sense to the people that their Messiah would be like this. This this one didn't make any sense. And that is, Jesus suffered for his people. He suffered for his people. 
And this doesn't, this doesn't make sense because the people, as, as I said, they're expecting a Messiah and they've been under the thumb of, of all these different foreign powers. They're currently under the thumb of Rome. They're sick of Rome. They're ready for a Messiah who's going to come overthrow Rome and sit on the throne in Jerusalem and rule them. But that's not what they got. Jesus, Jesus came and suffered He came to conquer sin and death, which was a much worse enemy than Rome. He came to absorb the wrath of God for them, which was a much more terrifying thing than Rome. But the people didn't know that that's what they needed. And so they didn't think this looked very kingly of Jesus. But the fact is, Jesus couldn't come in power He couldn't come in all of his glory and sit on the throne because if he had done that, he wouldn't have been able to carry out his mission, the mission that he knew why he had come, which is to save the people and to redeem them. And people had tried, when Jesus would would work miracles, they try to get him on the the throne. They want to make him king. He's like, no, that's not why I'm here. They wanted him to sit on the throne in Jerusalem, but Jesus knew that he came to hang on a cross outside of Jerusalem. That was his mission. So this confused them. He was a gentle and lowly shepherd. He was a humble teacher. These are not the kinds of characteristics you think of a world power leader. How many teachers become world leaders, right? Maybe they should, but, but, but that's not what our world values. We want type A personalities. We want people who project strength, who are going to get things done. And there's nothing wrong with those things per se. But Jesus didn't embody that kind of leadership. He didn't fit that bill. Jesus said that his kingdom is not a kingdom of this earth, but it is a kingdom of heaven. Remember what he told Pilate and Pilate asked him, are you a king? And Jesus said, yeah, I am a king, but I'm I'm not a king of of this world because if I was, my followers would be fighting you right now, but they're not because they're not worried about that. So remember, I I said that this is is not about us just knowing how to pick good leaders. This is not about finding the right president. What we learn from judges and from the history of Israel is much more than that. Israel, ancient Israel, was a theocracy where the king ruled underneath God and his word directly. We don't live in a theocracy. We live in a a democratic republic. And I know as Christians, sometimes we wish we did, but we don't, and that's okay. It's not mandated to us. And the reason for that is because Israel was God's chosen people. But now that Jesus has come and established a new covenant in his blood, Jesus has chosen people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so there isn't a single earthly king that can rule over that. Only Jesus can rule over that kingdom. Jesus came as a humble shepherd and a teacher, but he will come back as a conqueror. Listen to Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. 
And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That looks a lot more like the picture we think of when we, when we think of a powerful ruler. But Jesus is the ultimate king because he is a humble, loving shepherd and a teacher of God's word. And he is a sovereign king who eventually will crush all evil. But he's patiently waiting. He's patiently waiting for the right time. And his kingdom is at hand. The first words out of Jesus' mouth in the book of Mark are, the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand, so repent and believe. We're going to spend the next seven months, essentially, studying Mark and seeing what it looks like for us to tangibly participate as members of his kingdom, citizens of heaven, ambassadors for Christ. But this morning, we should wrap up just asking what we are going to do with this truth about Jesus. What is our response? First of all, do we need a king? Or, or was it just Israel who needed a king during the days of the judges when they didn't have a king? I think we know that we need good leadership. But what does that actually mean for us? Do, do we think we need good political and civic and community and church leaders? Yes, of course we do. And as Christians, we should and must engage in those things so that we can be salt and light in those areas. But we cannot put our hope in those things I've seen well-meaning Christians enter politics with all kinds of hopes for changing the world to God's glory, and they come out their lives an utter wreck and in flames because they had put their hope in the politics and not in Jesus, who they were trying to serve in doing that. So we have to put our hope not in politics or in leaders. Do we want a king? Do we want... We, we all follow someone. People always follow someone. Sometimes we fancy ourselves to be the king of our lives and we think we call the shots or we want to. The reality is all of us are standing on somebody's shoulders and we're, we're following someone. Who do we want to follow? And maybe most importantly, will we submit to the king? And with this many people in the room, I'm sure there's a pretty wide range of answers there from most emphatic yes to most emphatic no. But for those of you who would say, yeah, I, I do want to submit to Jesus. What are some ways that we can do that this week? How do we submit to Jesus as king? I want to give you just a couple of thoughts, and these aren't going to be earth-shattering, probably more reminders than anything, but I think we all need reminders. First of all, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, then do as Jesus said at the beginning of the book of Mark, and that is repent and believe. Have a change of mind and turn away from the direction you're going, turn to Jesus and recognize this is the only king that is actually going to save me, that is actually going to serve me, that is going to lead me in the right direction. He's the only one that can remove my sin and the penalty of it and can bring me into his kingdom and cause me to bear fruit. So call out to him today 
and tell him that. And if you want to talk to somebody about what it looks like to, to follow Jesus, you can come talk to me or Pastor Brooks or Pastor Josh or anybody that you may know that you're here with. What does it look like to follow Jesus? For those of you who would say yes and, and say, yeah, Zach, I do want to follow Jesus as king, but I'm, I'm already following him. There are a couple of things that we can do every day and every week to keep submitting to him. One, and let's just take these from, from Deuteronomy 17. We need to be people of the word. None of us have time to read the word, right? Everybody is busy. So we have to make time to invest in God's word. And I'm sure many of you already have a plan that you're following to read it and meditate on it and journal it. But if you don't, then take 10 minutes each night before bed this week and just read God's word. Pray through it. Journal it. And don't just pick the passages you already know. Read things that you've never read before and keep learning about the king. We read so that we know our king, so that we can hear his voice and then we can follow him. And then another way that we can submit to him, another thing that's important to God, to Jesus, is that we invest in people. That we invest in people. Remember, Jesus was a gentle shepherd that cared for people. How can you invest in people this week? This might be uh, relationships with your kids, with your parents, with your siblings, with your spouse, with coworkers, with people in your neighborhood or your community. But I, I want to I ask you to think about what does that look like this week for me to submit to Jesus as king and treat people the way that he has called us to, to be ambassadors to those who don't know him and to be brothers and sisters to those who do know him. How can we care for people? And for those of you who would say no, or I don't care, I would just ask you why. And maybe it's because you don't believe Jesus exists or he, he is who he said he was, but I would ask, who are you following? And why are you following them? Are you following science? Are you following a generic sense of moral goodness? Uh, are you following what happens in society around us, even though that is changing like every few weeks, like what's considered right and wrong? What are you following? Who are you following? And why are you following them? I would also ask that you come back and study the book of Mark with us as we go through it in the fall and the spring and see who Jesus is, that he's not just a great teacher, that he's not just an idea or a concept, that he's not a myth but that he is a real king. Before we pray, I wanted to just um, let you know if you would like for somebody to pray with you or for you after the service, you can come forward and there will be people that can pray with you. Um, but would you stand with me? And I would like to pray and, uh, and then offer a benediction before we go. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for the plan that you have had through all of, all of history and even before history, to send Jesus to be the king that we need. I pray that we would recognize him as king, that he would be the king of our hearts. And Jesus, we ask you to show us specifically this week, how can we submit to you? What does that look like? How can we be people that, that know you through your word and are, have hearts that are tender toward? How, how can we be people who are loving other people and following in Jesus' Jesus's example of love and how we can share the gospel in word and in deed this week. I pray that you would encourage hearts this morning. 
Draw hearts near to yourself. Save those who are lost. And bring glory to yourself in all of this. Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. All right, go in grace. We'll see you next week.